Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guests today are Dr. Krishnan Kapoor and Dr. Eman Nerlin. Dr. Kapoor is a plastic and cosmetic surgeon based in Chandigarh, North India. He's a global key opinion leader for Allegant Aesthetics, having founded India's first surgical and medical aesthetics clinic called Anticlock. Dr. Kapoor is a leading figure in medical aesthetic education and is especially renowned for his academic and anatomical prowess. Dr. Nerlin is also an international key opinion leader for Allegant Aesthetics and is a leading aesthetic doctor in the injectables industry. Based in Orobro, Sweden, she founded her own clinic, Rebel, where she established her reputation for beautiful, full-face treatments. Our guests co-wrote an academic paper with eight other leading aesthetic doctors around the world. It was titled, COVID-19 Pandemic, Consensus Guidelines for Preferred Practices in an Aesthetic Clinic. We'll explore the background to these guidelines, the evidence for the suggestions, and give injectors listening some key ideas to keep their staff and patients as safe as possible. Why don't we start with UKM? So what's been happening in India, first of all? Because we've seen videos here in, in Australia, at least, um, sent through WhatsApp that all went viral of the police being pretty harsh on uh, people if they weren't um, obeying the lockdown laws. What, what's your take on things? Yeah, initially when lockdown was uh, enforced, it was announced overnight. There was no prior intimation. And all of a sudden it was announced and everybody who was in whichever city they were, they were just stuck there. Initially, it was for three weeks and people managed to sort of uh, get used to it. But then it was announced further for three more weeks. And that's when the problem started happening. Because people who were working on daily wages or who were having small jobs or factory workers, most of them, they uh, work, you can say, day-to-day basis or week-to-week basis. And when they lost their livelihood, everybody wanted to get back to their villages, which were like very far off from the big industrial towns. Mm. And with uh, no transportation, people started walking along the train tracks. And then, of course, there were a lot of casualties due to humidity and heat. And there were some accidents where trains, there were some of the workers, they were hit by trains and they died during this. In the initial phase, of course, police was very harsh. And uh, even we we were in relatively, we would say, orange zone. And still, we could not go out of our house. So mm. our houses are like quite uh, spaced apart. And there's a big green belt in front of my house. So there's no crowding there. But still, if I go out of my house, some police patrol would come and ask me to go inside. Otherwise, they would lodge a complaint against me. So and it where was are very, you based in India? I'm based in Chandigarh. It's in northern part of India. It's a 40 minutes flight up north from New Delhi. Mm-hmm. And it's at the foothill of Himalayas. So you can see hills from my city. Very nice. 
Very nice. And uh, how about you, Aman? Because it's been a completely opposite yeah, do whatever you want situation. You know, in Sweden, it's not like do whatever you want, but it's uh, it has been. We were waiting for the lockdown to happen because we saw the borders closing in Norway, in Finland, in Denmark, in all the neighboring countries. And so in March, when this happened, we we were waiting for it to happen in Sweden as well. But um, our politicians, our uh, expert uh, epidemiologists, they were saying, hey, guys, we don't uh, see uh, the evidence base behind doing um, doing all this. Uh, we don't need to take the, the measures that a lot of countries are doing. So um, they say, try to do to practice social distancing, wash your hands, but go to work, uh, support your local businesses, try to live as normally as you possibly can. And, um, and that's it, basically. Um, for the for the majority of people, but they've closed down sc- upper secondary schools and universities, so it's basically only uh, e webinars and like e learning uh, there. And uh, we are recommended to avoid crowds, uh, big gatherings. We are recommended to uh, not commute. Um, uh, so try try to take the bus or take the bicycle to work and. And like like recommendations like that, but other than that, it's just try to live as normal as you possibly can. And what what are your thoughts on how it's been handled? I mean, I don't want to get into a political discussion and uh, and what have you, but just in terms of you know not doing, I guess, what most of the world did. How do you think that sort of fared? And yeah, just your thoughts generally. You know, I, I'm first of all, I'm not an expert. I'm not an epidemiologist or virologist or something like that, but. Um, I can just say that I think that uh, we could have handled things a bit um, um, well better uh, by using more restrictions, by applying more restrictions, because we have, as we speak, the highest deaths per capita in Sweden. We have over 4,000 deaths in Sweden um, related to the COVID-19, and we're only 10 million pe- people living here. Um, so, and we see that we, we will, our actions were actually aimed to, um, just protect the ones who are in the risk groups, the elderly and the ones with, um, chronic diseases of different kinds, but we've failed to protect those people. And so I think we could have saved more lives by being more cautious, maybe not having a lockdown, but. Uh, having more restrictions. That is my my thought on this. Am I right in saying that, I don't know if this is a joke or real, but the, the Swiss kind of culture is very socially distant anyway. So was, was some Swedish, of that... Swedish, not Swiss. <laughs> no, no, no more Coronas, no, Jake. Yeah. No more. <laughs> <laughs> He's had two sips. He's forgotten yeah. where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> Swedish. No. Um, yeah, but yeah, like, Swedish, is that, yeah. Is that serious? Like, are people very uh, respectful of their space? And was the thought process from the government, well, people are going to kind of abide by this anyway? You know, it is no joke. We as Swedish people are generally socially distancing anyways. We, are, we don't even always say hi to our neighbours. We try to avoid people. Like, we're not 
especially during the winter months, um, it's cold, it's dark. We just want to ga- go, go from point A to point B without being interrupted by foreigners. <laughs> like we just want to do our thing. Uh, but when it comes yeah. to the springtime and summertime, we are more sociable. We like to be outdoors. We, uh, we have our summer parties and this is the highlight of the year. So what we've noticed is that going from March and like March is a winter month for us. So March, in February and March was no problems with social distancing and basically. But now that the sun is out, the flowers are blooming, like everything is blooming. It's um, people are getting tired of being staying at home. So they are really keen on meeting and like these social gatherings are the highlights. Yeah, I think it's been the same here in Sydney. I don't know if David agrees, but like for about six weeks, everyone was kind of doing their thing and being Mm -hmm. locked down and it was kind of okay. And then by about week seven, week eight, everyone's getting bored and frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends on your your living situation as well. I mean, I've got um, a girlfriend and and two cats, so we, we were like happy to be here, but I can imagine if I had three kids running around and you know, in a tiny house, I'd probably want to shoot myself. So I think that I think it depends on your situation. You know, definitely. That's that's you have a good point there. You've got a young family, Iman, haven't you? Yes, I have three kids, but I don't. I'm not on yeah. lockdown, so I don't want to shoot myself. That's good, right? Yeah, yeah that's good. That's good. <laughs> How about you, Christian? Because your son flew in from the States, right? And then he had to quarantine himself. Yeah, he was studying in Stanford. He's in the third year of his graduation. And we could just fly him back four days before there was complete uh, uh, air travel shutdown in India. So Mm. luckily he reached just in time. And my daughter, she's again in boarding, but she's in Bangalore. It's again in India. So both of them, they they are with us now. And my son is continuing uh, one the current trimester online. And we are not sure what will happen in September when the next year mm. starts. And just from mm. a um, mm. an economic perspective, our, our government here in Australia has taken some pretty drastic steps to so and protect people's jobs and incomes so we're not having riding on the streets and businesses clo- closing down everywhere. Um, those stimulus packages sort of end in September. What, what have you guys done in your countries or what have your governments done to try and keep people afloat and businesses uh, open and people with jobs? Has it sort of been that sort of thing happening? So in our country, uh, the government announced a package which was, like you can say, about 40 billion US dollar. But it turned out to be it was just the loan facility which they were giving to the people. Mm-hmm. So there was no support. And they never spoiled us with any choice or with any freebies. So, in fact, there is hardly any support from the government. Everybody is on its own. So a lot of businesses, they are shutting down. A lot of factories, they are closing down. People are expecting. In fact, there was some report that uh, in this current quarter, Indian economy is going to shrink down by 40%. So our GDP will be down by forty percent. That's massive. Wow. Wow. That's uh, massive. Yeah. Yeah. If you get a if you get a shrinkage of a few percent, that's a big deal. But forty percent is just like I don't even I don't even know how to begin processing that with a country the size of India. That's that's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing which has done which has done good, uh, the lockdown has done good to the number of deaths. So out of one point 
roughly 4 billion people currently our death rate is our death count is only about 5 and a half thousand which is probably wow. lowest in the world wow yeah but the economic cost has been enormous huge mm. why do you think that is i mean you know I, i feared countries like india would be decimated because of you know unfortunately the poor living conditions of people etc so why hasn't that materialized stronger immune systems <laughs> yeah one of the theory was that when you are exposed to something like covid there is very strong immune response we they call it cytokine storm where in your mm-hmm. body's immunity there is sudden surge but in india probably we are exposed to low grade infection almost on daily basis so if a new infection comes in our body probably the immune response is not that strong to it and secondly there are some paper study regarding bcg vaccination most of the indians mm-hmm. they are vaccinated for tuberculosis with bcg and probably it has got some role in reducing the severity of uh, this condition and of course temperature we are currently going through summers it's high temperature 40 degrees or so mm-hmm. in northern india northern and central yeah. india mm-hmm. i sort of i sort of wonder um when you look at um the discussions around that massive shrink in gdp and the amount of the uh, little lack of support from the government things like uh suicide and death from from poverty and, and things like that i mean that those statistics aren't going to be counted in the initial death of the virus but those numbers could dwarf the actual numbers of people dying from the disease itself which is something to consider absolutely and also i was uh, talking to one of my patients uh, she's a police officer and she told me that uh, there are even even though we do not have a lockdown uh, we've uh, they've noticed an increase um, quite tangible increase in domestic violence and uh, children um, having very harsh conditions at home and um, like the, the the problematic situation that we that is not exactly like um discussed um when it comes to the, the disease right so there's a lot of mm. impact um, also, um in the society flow yeah. effect yeah now pivot on to happier news and this is why we're sort of talking today it seems like most clinics around the world are opening or about to open i know in sweden not switzerland sweden uh, they're already open um so You guys were involved in drafting up some guidelines uh with is it eight other colleagues there was 10 of you on the paper that's, that's that right? correct So you know you're all friends of mine in various ways but just tell us about the background to how you guys decided to write this paper and and yeah and who was involved So Christian you're the uh, initiative taker so um, I will let you have the word Ah uh, yeah uh, we were actually thinking about starting a clinic after the lockdown is lifted although it was supposed to lift after three to be lifted after three weeks but it was again extended for three more weeks but then during that period we were thinking how should we do uh, how should we plan and which all precaution we should take so while doing research about this then i got this idea that why shouldn't we write some guidelines wherein which will be useful to most of the aesthetic clinics because there are guidelines for uh hospitals and then there are like for radiology people or dental clinics 
but there were no guidelines for aesthetic clinic and specifically for various procedures which we are doing on day to day basis and one thing which is uh, unique to our branch is that there is a lot of one to one interaction in aesthetic medicine most of the uh, treatments they are basically procedures which have to be given by the therapist or by the doctor to the patient and the role of consultation or this prescription is uh, quite less compared to pure dermatology so with this in mind then i spoke to vandana she is a co-author and we have been doing some publications together and my wife dr puneet she works with uh, me in my clinic and three of us were there and then i got to meet all the other authors through a whatsapp group which is the hive yeah. whatsapp group which of course is your brain child jake and then we decided to sit down and make guidelines the time was very short and we divided the task amongst ourselves and we made a brief outline and it was distributed to everyone we had a zoom meeting on 27th and it was a like marathon meeting where for about two and a half to three hours we discussed all the points and we reached a consensus which means more than 70% people agreed to certain set of questions or the points and then in next 60 hours we all sat down leaving everything else and i would say it would be probably a record breaking paper wherein we could all finish it in less than 3 days and submit it on 1st of uh, april yeah it was a forced like we really united and pushed uh, each other to make the deadlines and uh, it was incredible to be part of this and uh, to work together um, for to create this uh, paper Now just to orientate the listeners who may not have heard of you guys um can you just give them a brief outline of your background start with you Aman because you're talking to us um so what what do you do what's your background where do you work and what's your sort of what are you best known for So I'm a cosmetic doctor here in Sweden I'm based in a small city called Örebro it's in well, located in between Gothenburg and, and Stockholm which are the biggest cities here in Sweden and I've been um, I started my career within psychiatry and then uh, my medical career within psychiatry and then I ha- did 6 years of anesthesiology in intensive care uh, but I changed my love of syringes um, with the, with the sedatives to with the injectable treatments instead uh, about 2010 so that's when I started facial aesthetics and um, founded my own clinic uh, Rebel Clinic in 2011 and since then i've been working mainly with uh, injectable treatments uh, and um, i've been working with allegan as a trainer and i'm one of the international qls um, so my well um, my focus area is europe uh, at the moment and um, so i i really love what i do and i have my own academy and i have my own little clinic where we do uh, different um, various aesthetic treatments as well and um, that's basically it <laughs> and that's how we met with the Allegan association yeah yeah and actually i think we 
came into contact due to the fact that I'm uh, one of the first groups of uh, mentees of Maritza de Mayo. That's right. right? Well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think uh, thanks to that um, that program that I joined, you contacted me and we had a chat and look at us now here, three three years later. Well, your advice helped. I became a mentee this year, so thank you. <laughs> Congratulations to you. Thank you. Now, Chris, tell us about your background because um, I sort of, you know, a couple of years ago I'd heard your name and you were like this rock god from India, plastic surgeon who flies around the world educating pretty much everyone. So can you just fill in the gaps for us? Yeah, I started my career as a plastic surgeon in 2001. And I'm based in, as I said, in Chandigarh. It's a capital city of two big states in northern India. So it's a pretty big city and it's a power center uh, in the north. And I work with a big hospital. It's a 400-bedded hospital called Fortis Hospital. And I'm working as a plastic and cosmetic surgeon there. Apart from that, I have my own clinic. Its name is Anti-Clock Medispa, wherein I do all my non-surgical work in my own clinic, which includes injectables, mainly Botox and uh, fillers. And then, of course, we also have cool sculpting, hull therapy, and lasers and all, all regular stuff, which is there in an aesthetic clinic. I also have been working as a KOL and trainer with Allergan and my major focus area had been in Asia and I've traveled extensively in Asia, in China, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and of course, India. And But I've been going to other countries also for various uh, trainings, uh, mainly fillers. And my major interest has been facial anatomy. We have been conducting a facial anatomy course in Singapore, in Singapore General Hospital, in collaboration with, uh, with Allergan. And I'm part of AMI. So we almost, we were doing one cadaver training session every two months. So almost six to seven sessions we were doing every year. Apart from that, we've done these courses in Dubai, in Rio de Janeiro, and many other countries. Yeah, and I was actually very lucky to meet you for the first time on that cadaver course in Singapore. It was fantastic. So thank you for the work you do. Um, So I guess the reason that David and I organized this podcast is because it's actually a really topical time tomorrow, which is June the 1st. All of the clinics or the, the, the outstanding clinics will open up. So New South Wales, which is our state, and Victoria and many of the other states are already open. So what we wanted to do is um, give the people listening the best guidance possible by summarizing some of the, you know, the key points in your paper that you've suggested. Um, so I guess it's probably worth highlighting that, you know, if you're listening to this in the States or, you know, another country, even a smaller town, some of this may not be directly applicable to you. Um, so, you know, think about um, your own situation, your own country, your own town, and see how some of these suggestions will, um, you know, work for you or not, perhaps. So um, do you want to just talk about sort of the the generalities of the paper, and then we can go through the specifics, Krish? Yeah. So the idea of, as I said, the idea of this 
paper was to guide the aesthetic clinic owners uh, about how to run their clinics during covid pandemic and after the lockdown period so as as most of the aesthetic clinics they are run by one or two doctors and they are small clinics they do not have resources like large hospitals so we wanted to give some like really basic guidelines in very simple language which can be easily understood by everybody in most of the countries and which should be applicable also because when when we started looking for guidelines there were some papers which were discussing like you have to have one separate entry point and then person should be exiting from the other side they should they should move in only one way direction but then looking at the reality of an aesthetic clinic uh most of the aesthetic clinics they are small they just have three four five treatment rooms and there there are no separate entry or exit point so we had to devise strategies or have to divide some guidelines wherein people who are actually involved in day to day running of the aesthetic clinic they can follow those guidelines and they they could implement yes so idea was to make it really really simple for them so that uh, there should not be any technical jargon or there should not be any big equipment or something like that which they cannot buy or procure and they feel frustrated after reading the paper so that was the whole idea and of course in the paper we have written that uh, these are just basic guidelines and uh, each country has its own set of rules and guidelines and some of that uh, some of those guidelines they are actually very important and they need to be followed so you can treat our guidelines as sort of basic guidelines and you can always add some more region specific or country specific guidelines into uh the existing guidelines and this way you can uh have a safe environment for both the patients as well as for the the staff who's treating the patients yeah now david i'm going to bring you in here because you own four clinics what's your take on uh you know opening tomorrow are you nervous are you comfortable well it's been weird because i have clinics in different states and different states have uh different legislation and things that they can and can't do so i've got clinics in canberra that opened for cosmetic injectable treatments a few weeks ago um and that's been obviously really really busy people there's a lot of pent up demand that uh, people have been uh, very distressed about their wrinkles and 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 body hair um so it's been good for the for the first couple of weeks um very busy and new south wales opens everything tomorrow all in one hit um and i oh sorry and canberra opened for all of our other treatments which include laser hair removal skin treatments and so on um it's going to be interesting because our clinics are really busy so some of my clinics might see 100 people in a day so all of the um processes in terms of the, the amount of people you can have in your facility or having to te- check their temperature when they come in all these sorts of things are going to be a logistical challenge um from a business perspective so it's yeah challenging times but david can i just ask you david uh, like what uh, what have you done what kind of adjustments have you done to your uh, practices which has been open uh, for a few weeks now um yeah that's interesting to hear so we have put Yeah so we've put in um we have to have like 1.5 meters 
um, from people from each other, like patients waiting in the waiting room. Um, we've had to ensure that people like wash, uh, sanitizing their hands when they come into the clinic. We've got a questionnaire that we get people to sort of answer in terms of have they been feeling any well? When did they last travel? Um, is anyone have they been exposed to anyone that's been that's been that's been diagnosed um, with COVID? Mm-hmm. So we have to ask all those questions. We're taking a, a temperature with an infrared thermometer, so if people are outside, um, sort of uh, what would be considered normal or normal range for body temperature, then we have to refuse the treatment, mm-hmm. um, stopping them coming in with other people. So quite often people will come into our clinics and bring like their child or their friend or their mum or spouse or what have you. So we've had to ask them not to bring extra people in. Um, in terms of um, the girls, just the girls that are well for me, just extra precautions in terms of wearing a fa- face mask all the time, changing their gloves twice as regularly as what they were before. Every time we go out of a room, we're sanitising door handles, which is something we probably didn't do before. We're obviously changing over bed sheets and cleaning bits and pieces mm. and cleaning up dressing, throwing out all the disposables, but um, just a whole lot of extra procedures in terms of cleanliness. So... Yeah, and there's probably some I'm missing that I'm forgetting as well, but they're, they're quite extensive. Wow. That's great. You know, you've actually ticked a lot of the things that we um, have been discussing in our group, and uh, which is in the paper too. So that's that's excellent. Presumably, as aesthetic practitioners and clinics, we need to assume that everyone potentially is walking around with COVID. I mean, the reality is that's probably not true or hopefully not, but we need to approach this with the assumption that everyone does. So we are taking those extra precautions. Um, so I, I think your your paper is written with that standpoint. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and um, well, the beautiful thing with this paper is that it's very practical. And just like Dr. Kapoor said, it's written in a easy, understandable language. And uh, you can take bits and pieces um, to, and apply it to your own clinic. Uh, so it's hmm. uh, easy to, to uh, have some tips and tricks on how to make it safer for both you and the patient. Yeah. Uh, and one thing, I know you don't go specifically into detail in the paper about this, and it's probably a topic in itself, but do you have any uh, guidelines on what types of masks people are wearing? There was the whole um, hoo-ha of N95 versus surgical mask versus cloth mask. Do you have any particular thoughts about that, or is it just about a protective barrier as a minimum? And then, you know, above that, that's, that's great. But the practicalities are that these things are expensive, difficult to get hold of, and maybe not evidence-based. Yeah, we had divided, uh, in fact, we, we made two tables and we divided procedures into low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And based on the risk potential of a procedure, we made a further table which prescribed the kind of PPE which is required. And for the okay. low, for the low risk procedures, a simple three-ply face mask is enough, whereas for moderate risk and high-risk procedures, we advise N95 mask. Okay, fair enough. So we'll we'll come to that, but I think your first point, which was kind of really just basic but useful, is just scheduling of patients. Um, so, for example, David's already touched on the fact that it makes sense that people come on their own if they can. Um, but one of the really interesting things and good things that I thought you highlighted, which I didn't even think of, is it would be good to communicate with your patients even before they've come to download their own country's COVID app onto their phone 
So if there was ever an issue, you could start to contact trace that person and, and potentially find hotspots within cities. So I think that's a really interesting thing that you guys came up with that I hadn't really anticipated. And do you think that some people will be resistant to that when, when sort of asked on the spot, you know, are you happy to download this app before we proceed with your treatment? Yeah, in fact, it's a very uh, interesting point. And from a medical legal point of view, I was discussing with one of my friends. It is very important because a person or a patient can come to your clinic. And apart from visiting your clinic, he may go to 20 other places that day. And after two days, if the same person gets COVID infection, he can very well say, okay, I went to that specific clinic, they didn't take precaution and I got my COVID infection from that clinic. But if that yeah. person has a contact tracing app, at least there is a way to find out where all he went during mm -hmm. those 24 hours. And it's not just your own, just your clinic, but he has been going to a mall or a grocery stores. He can go to any place. So from that point of view also, it's very important. And of course, uh, if he goes to, if he goes near to any particular person who has contact with COVID-19, the, the app would start beeping. So that's yeah. another good point about these apps. And it's, it's very important if we can convince our patient. In fact, in India, although uh, this app has been there for some time, but it is voluntary. Uh, but we can always tell our patient before coming that they should have this downloaded in their phone and they should, their Bluetooth should be also on when they come to the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't uh, use this uh, app in Sweden, to be honest. Uh, do you have it in Australia? Of course we do. Yes. Of course you do. Well prepared. Um, no, I, I will say, and I don't know if things have changed, but about a week or two ago, um, it was criticized quite heavily because um, if, you're, you know, if your phone turns to lock mode, which most people have after a few minutes or whatever, the app has been shown to not work whilst the phone is locked. Mm -hmm. um, the other issue is that you, I believe you have to be in contact or, or, or within contact of another person's Bluetooth for 15 minutes. So ah. sure, that's relevant in a aesthetic treatment for sure. But if you're just wandering around your shopping mall, getting some bananas, that's not really going to be too relevant. Mm. So, you know, I think it's better to have the not and, and maybe you will pick up the odd person, but it doesn't seem to be that all encompassing magic you know, tracing app that we all would hope for. There's also a lot of um, concerns from various people around, you know, privacy. You know, there's this exactly. people sort of being very conscious at the moment, you know, with all the information that's come out with what, you know, people like Facebook and Twitter and, you know, do with your data and profile you and all these sorts of things. So there's definitely a, a, a cohort of people um, that are resistant to this in terms of, you know, this is just the thin end. This is just the, uh, this is just the beginning in terms of people losing you know, their ability to sort of have some anonymity and, and, and uh, privacy. Yeah, and integrity. Yeah, absolutely. No, but, but I think most of the apps which are there in our phone, whether it's Google Map or yes. Uber or Ola, they all have location on. Yeah. So if your location is on in any of these apps, so they can very well know where you are going. I, th I think yeah. the concern is people are, are fearful that this may become mandatory. 
Whereas you can choose to lose your phone, leave your phone at home. You can switch to delete that application. You can go in and turn those settings off. People are worried that once we start doing these sorts of things, it's a, it's a slippery slope. If you start enforcing these things by law, then I think that's what the concern is. It's, yes. it's not what it is right now. It's what it could become. Yeah, I agree. Um, in terms of scheduling, I don't know if this comes logically in your paper, but it's worth flagging. So do you have any guidelines for how you should space people out for their bookings? Is it 15 minutes? Is it five minutes? Is it half an hour? You know, because eventually that will have an impact on how many people you can see and volume for high volume clinics, et cetera. And how long does it really take to clean a room to the standard that you guys are proposing? How would you sort of answer that? It doesn't say a specific amount of time. Uh, it's just the fact that, just like you said, uh, Jake, uh, we have to adapt it to our clinic setting. Uh, if I'm the only one doing the cleaning in my room, I have to make sure that I'm spacing out my patients so I have enough time to clean all the um, the surfaces and, um, and make sure that I can deliver a safe um, uh, treatment for the next uh, patient coming in. So in our paper, yeah. we do not have a specific amount of minutes in between. Uh, and yeah. Perfect. But we have mentioned in the paper that the time, time gap between the appointment, it can vary depending upon the size of the waiting area. Like if you can maintain social distancing, you can have more people there. And then it also depends on number of treatment rooms. Because yeah. if you have more number of treatment rooms, then you can, uh, uh, the turnaround time can be uh, less. And also you, like, you can use half of the treatment room for one slot of, uh, one group of patients and then clean them. In the meanwhile, the other half of treatment rooms can be used. And also it depends upon number of therapists and doctors who are there. And of course, type and duration of the procedure. For example, if you are doing whole body, Laser hair removal, one room is occupied for almost one and a half to two hours. But if it is a small procedure, your turnaround time is much faster. So there are no hard guidelines, but you have to kind of find a way around and see what kind of facilities you have in your clinic. And accordingly, you can give appointment to your patients. So we've looked at the factors, um, just like Dr. Kapoor is saying, uh, the length of the procedure, uh, if it's an aerosol-producing um, uh, procedure, um, and uh, just like uh, if it's a face or is it a body treatment, uh, etc. So you have a very practical tips on how we divide these procedures into low, moderate, and high risk. Um, some of my nurses were asking me about uh, things like mouthwash especially when you're sort of treating the sort of, you know, perioral region. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are we sort of, uh, is that a bit of an overkill or do you think that sort of stuff's a good idea? Coming on to that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, there's no structure, but answer it now because it's actually relevant, I guess, yeah. We, we've mentioned that in our study. So, uh, for instance, if, we are, if you have a patient coming in for a lip filler treatment, um, it's wise to, it's, it's considered to, I mean, you're in contact with mucosa, with saliva, you're in contact um, with a patient who do not have the ma mask, the face mask on. Um, so it's a wise thing to add uh, the solution to the, like the rinse, mouth rinsing solution to, to the um, protocol. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that you guys recommended the hydrogen peroxide containing mouthwashes versus chlorhexidine. Yeah, it could be chlorhexidine, it could be a povidone iodine mouthwash. Some okay. antiseptic mouthwash can be used. I know this sounds stupid, but it made sense to me. Would you ask them to rinse the mouth as well as gargle the back of the mouth or just rinse the mouth? Yes, gargle back, till back of the mouth, till the throat, yeah. Okay. Very detailed. That's, that's what I can do. Okay. Now, in terms of the patient evaluation, um, you know, when people call the clinic and you've potentially got a therapist who isn't a doctor or a nurse on the phone, what what are the key questions that we should be asking people and screening before they've even come to our clinics? Well, we have, um, um, I'm just going to, well, in the overview is basically if they've been in contact with somebody who's COVID positive, for instance, that is pretty straightforward, right? If they've been traveling um, to certain areas which are higher um, in exposure to COVID, and uh, what else? Chris, you have to so we call help it, me, uh, please. The yeah. talk, the talk. Yeah. So we call it TOCC guidelines. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So T was for travel. Whether there is any history of travel in the past fourteen days, then O was for occupation. If the person or the spouse is in high-risk occupation, then we need to be a little more careful. Then first C was whether the patient has been in contact with a COVID-positive patient in last 14 days. And the second C, EOCC, the second C was if patient is coming from a cluster, like like in my country, there are zones like green zone, orange zone, and red zone. So if somebody is coming from red zone, there is high likelihood of that person being infected with COVID. So these, based on these four guidelines, we made a algorithm. And based on algorithm, and, and we divided into three categories. Only the first categories, which in which patient with no history of TOCC, with uh, no symptoms, only they were taken in for elective procedure. Anybody, uh, even patients who uh, are asymptomatic but positive TOCC history, we would call them after 14 days. And if a person is symptomatic as well as TOCC history positive, then that we recommend that person to go and uh, go to a COVID-specific hospital where he can be tested. So this is the way we categorize patients. Patients also into low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And for aesthetic clinic, we would prefer to take only low risk patients who are asymptomatic with negative TOCC history. Yeah, and that mirrors back to what I was saying. You know, we have to sort of pretend in our PPP that everyone has got potential COVID. But the reality is we want to be treating people who we actually think aren't infected, of course. So if there's any suspicion, then you would not let them in the clinic rather than wear your PPP and treat them. So I think anyone listening, you just need, need to be very clear in your mind that your screening process to get these people in or out of your clinics has got to be clear from the start and even from the telephone when they book in. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in fact, this history is taken on the phone and before giving the appointment and based on the history given by the patient. And we believe that that's true then we tell them to come and give appointment. If we have a little doubt 
of symptoms or TOCC positive history, then we ask them to wait for 14 days. I was curious how um how you how you both are, are dealing with the response from patients in the request for these extra requirements and precautions. I know that like in my clinics, there's been quite quite a number of patients that have been quite difficult. Um, don't really understand, thinks that it's annoying, it's an overkill, you know, they're getting upset. And that's probably part of our culture. We're a very empowered uh, nation of people. Um, so it might be have something cultural might be something to do culturally, but just curious how that how that's going in your in your parts of the world. In Sweden, in Sweden, you know, people are roaming around like it's pre-COVID days. You have to remember that. So when I'm asking them not to come in to have their treatments, uh, they say, well, I've been, I feel quite well, but you never know, mm-hmm. right? So um, outs- in the society, it's basically, well, n- very little restrictions. Um, and in my clinic, we are extremely, we're asking all these questions and uh, being extra careful. Uh, and they might think that we are overdoing it. But this is just, I think it's wise that we as physicians we are taking responsibility and showing people that um, we have to be cautious. This is not to be taken lightly. So um, I think we are setting the standards. My clinic and other clinics, very few clinics in Sweden are asking these questions. Very few clinics even have face masks. You can still see my colleagues across the street wearing no face mask whatsoever and injecting people like like it was not a big deal at all. So um, I have to. I'm trying to adapt um, the guidelines into my clinic. Um, but people are saying, "Oh, they are overdoing it." Yes, we are, but we're mm. doing it for your sake. So I think there in India there are two factors which are driving us to take these extra precautions. One is of course safety of uh, myself as well as my staff. And second, knowing the fact that if myself or one of my staff member, they become COVID positive, my clinic will be shut down for and shut down and sealed for four weeks at least. So Mm. it makes sense for me to refuse a patient, even if the patient is annoyed, rather than having him and risking getting infection and risking closure of my clinic for four weeks. That's wise. I have to say, because I went into my clinic last week to sort of test some of these protocols and it, you know, it's easy to have a bullet point list of stuff to do, but when you actually walk into your own specific situation, you have to be like, ah, okay, actually the toilet's there and we have to think about how we do this with patient flow, et cetera. And one of the things that I noticed with, um, you know, our reception staff is, even though they're sort of trained and, and they know what to do, sometimes they don't feel empowered or confident enough to challenge is the wrong word, but challenge someone with a temperature thermometer at the door and say, hey, is it okay if we do this before you even step in the door? They they feel like it's rude or... Confrontational. It's Yeah, it is a bit confrontational. And, you know, if someone's booked in for a simple anti-wrinkle treatment and and they're sort of stopped at the door by someone with a you know, a temperature gun, it's, it's just a little bit confronting. So, um, I think, you know, you have to empower your staff to feel like this is the right thing to do. Otherwise there's going to be this constant friction of, I don't really want to do it and so on. Yeah. But I think you can, there's several ways of doing it and you can do it with a smile. You can do it 
to show that you're doing this because you you really care about your patients and uh, you care about your staff and you can do it in different ways so it doesn't have to be confront uh, like a c- confrontational um, procedure or a, a thing you have to do no absolutely absolutely now let's come on to the categorization of the risk of treatments this is probably something really key for injectors and aesthetic clinics so what what would you guys consider low risk dr kapoor yeah you can speak then i'll i'll complete uh... <laughs> okay so i'll i'll do the easy part and you do the hard part that's great <laughs> <laughs> no but basically if we look at for instance uh, a toxin treatment you can have the patient covered so the patient can be covered with a face mask i can be covered with a face mask it's a relatively short procedure and we are injecting in the most often in the upper face so so it's a, considered a low risk and you you as we mentioned in the article you can cut down the chit chat and you can ease the the flow in the in the clinic so this appointment can be 5 minutes if you have a regular client so this makes it a low risk yeah yeah and then so, yeah. you know in my experience last week uh people haven't seen you for a long time and the first thing I want to do is tell you about the whole lockdown yeah. <laughs> but they they can do that on the phone yeah. or in an email or through instagram or <laughs> so there's other ways yeah. to chit chat and keep keep a connection with your clients absolutely that's interesting that you're recommending and it makes sense that your patient also wears a mask because then you've got two barriers not one but again with the practicalities of availability of masks etc is that sort of best practice but still low practice sorry low risk if you're wearing your own ppe so in uh, in india it's mandatory for everyone to wear a mask and but still we at the entrance of our cleaning we have kept uh, apart from a sanitizer which is there a patient is asked to wear shoe covers a mm. mask and a cap so it is available at at the entrance and they wear everything and for our female patients we have uh, put black big black uh, polythene bags wherein when they come we ask them to put their handbags into those bags and we tie a rubber band on top of it because i think that's another big source of infection because it's kept everywhere wherever they go but by far patients have been quite cooperative and uh, i think it's a good idea at least if you provide uh, a mask to them because when we did risk categorization of the procedures we considered three things in that procedure one is whether in those procedures there is any aerosol generation or not and the second was whether during this procedure a patient can wear the mask and third was the duration of uh, the procedure so so we kept those procedure where patient as well as therapist both are wearing mask as low risk for example if i'm doing botox on the upper face wearing patient can still wear the mask and the doctor is also wearing the mask i would consider it a low risk procedure but if i'm doing botox in the perioral area or on the chin where patient cannot wear the mask or if i'm doing a lip filler injection wherein 
not only patient is not wearing mask but i'm also coming in contact with oral secretions so we label that procedure as a moderate risk procedure and then of course yeah. there are procedures in which uh, we use some equipment which leads to formation of aerosols or there are some laser procedure where there is a lot of smoke or plume formation and we consider those as uh, the high risk procedures so this is how we divided various aesthetic procedures into low moderate and high risk so in terms of um the lip filler um you know there are various associations here that have produced their own guidelines and some of them have said you know don't do lip fillers others like yourself have pointed out that it's high risk because it's treating the mucosa with potential saliva or secretions um are you personally still happy to offer lip fillers or is it something that you've avoided for now we are doing lip fillers but as i said we take all the precautions uh, of course when the patient comes to us we patient has to remove the mask but just before the injection actual injection i ask the patient to go and uh, use a mouthwash and spend good 2 3 minutes uh doing the using the mouthwash and then when the patient comes back i'm already ready i'm wearing uh, n95 mask and in the clinics where they have access to face shield like i have a face shield so to be doubly sure i wear a face shield also while i'm doing lip filler injection yeah and i think as long as patient is quiet and not speaking and there is and if you are a good injector you won't have a lot of blood coming out through injections so it it's a reasonably safe uh, procedure and we put it in moderate risk category and you can also add uh, the fact that pe- the patient can numb themselves up before they even enter the clinic um, so you you can minimize the time spent together with the patient as well yeah I mean I I did a lip filler last week and I was thinking about this and I read your paper and I thought okay a lot of this I can do standing to the side or even behind the patient with a tenting technique I can ask them to breathe through their nose so their sort of their breath is down and there's all these yeah. practicalities until you do it you, you just think oh it'll be fine and then you realize actually this is high risk yeah. um and going back to the mouthwash I've really thought about this <laughs> um what I was asking people to do is to use like a disposable uh cup rinse and then dispose of that in the toilet rather than a sink mm. and then dispose of the cup That's so good. you're not contaminating public sinks and things like That's that That's good. So and also yeah. also put the lid down the toilet seats that is um, a good thing. I, a lot of people uh, don't do that. Gentlemen always would put the seat down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 I am but there's a lot of females okay. not doing that either so <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um going back to laser treatments that's been a really controversial one here in Australia everyone's saying you know it can't happen because of the aerosolization so basically when you blast a laser at some skin you get some tissue and hair going into the atmosphere is there anything are you still offering these treatments or or not for now so during our uh, discussion with all the experts all the 10 people when we were discussing this was probably uh 
the most contentious issue regarding the laser because many of the lasers there is a lot of plume generations and people think that if there is plume there could be possibility of some transmission of in, uh, this viral infection because obviously it is in the air there is a risk of uh, transmission but then we thought there are some procedures or some lasers wherein there is contact cooling is there for example if i'm using a normal ndag laser for hair removal there is a lot of smoke generation and you can even smell the hair burning mm. but on the other hand if i'm doing some uh, gel contact laser for example soprano titanium or something like that so there there's hardly any smoke uh, because everything is uh, cooled down with gel and nothing is coming out into the air so we thought maybe the uh, the ones in which there is no smoke generation those lasers which use gel because gel is going to trap a large amount of the smoke within the gel itself and would not let it go into the air so those lasers yeah. may be done during this time but of course where there is a lot of smoke generation where you can actually smell in your nose that things yeah. are burning it means it has reached your nose so that could yeah. be a little tricky <laughs> yeah. i mean I, i remember reading your paper i can't remember which laser it was but you suggested you may be able to use uh, like a cling film barrier or a glad wrap we would call it here in australia between the skin and yeah we yeah we found a very interesting paper uh, in which they said that if you apply a cling film on top of a tattoo and then use a q switch laser so you can avoid the splatter or plume formation and but of course you have to slightly increase the energy settings because you are going through the cling film so that's again yeah. one improvisation which that uh, doctor had done in his paper it's interesting when it comes to um laser and using the cling film uh, sounds like it wouldn't have a sort of an issue with thermal relaxation time at all yeah because uh, they had mentioned that of course you need to change the settings yeah of your treatment you need to give a little higher energy to yeah take care the presence of cling film in the situation but that's one mm. way of avoiding the splatter or plume yeah okay perfect um moving on to staff training um i remember one part of the paper where you suggested quite rightly that you know if you have staff over the age of 60 maybe with comorbidities as well that there's a potential higher risk for those sorts of people um presumably that would be a personal uh decision what i mean david if you employed someone in that sort of demographic would you sort of have a, a a particular word with that person or is it a personal choice how would you approach that one sorry so if i had if i had a staff member or a patient if he had a staff member over 60 with comorbidities well, in my industry i probably have never employed someone that age they tend to be struggle with the uh with the amount of physical activity so but yeah pro- probably i would it's it's hard to force people obviously that you know it's a free country so people can obviously make their own choices but yeah it would definitely encourage them perhaps you know that they should probably take some leave until things settle down a little further yeah and iman like in the paper obviously you, you want to train your staff but how do you best roll that out because most clinics will open here in australia tomorrow mm-hmm. they've had their doors locked up until 
tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so the staff hadn't, hadn't really had a chance to be trained unless there are online opportunities or, or you can do this over the phone. How would you best suggest that staff maybe who aren't medical professionals are trained? Well, you know, in the best conditions, it would, be, it would have been great if they've had a meeting prior to the opening, of course. And I'm sure that all the different clinics have their strategies and that they've discussed how they're going to do the open, reopening. But um, I think it's important that we, that, that you, um, the, the clinic, um, sit down and go through the, the different um, scenarios um, and ask themselves, okay, what can we optimize uh, to, in order to make this um, a safe environment for all of us and all for, the, for the patients? So what can we do yeah. to improve the waiting areas? How can we improve the patient flow? When we welcome the patient, what, should, what steps uh, of precautions should we take? Um, and for instance, should we implement online consultations if you haven't already done that? Uh, how should we minimize the time um, in the treating room, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's just really important that all of the staff, um, like as a part of the training, like go through the, the whole process, the whole flow together with, uh, yeah. with everybody. So everybody's in alignment uh, with what, which, which actions should be made, basically. Yeah. And did you sort of implement reduced staffing numbers or reduced hours or different shifts? Did you did you do anything like that? Um, yes, but it was actually not um, something I wanted, but I had to reduce one uh, of the staff and uh, staff number. But uh, we've optimized so the flow in my clinic, and uh, we have no walk-in appointments. We have no so we're closing the door in between sessions so no people are allowed um, if they haven't already a booking so we give them the evil eye if they come without an appointment so no just kidding no but so so uh, we've optimized that and we've uh, off, we're offering um, online uh, consultations um, like uh, through FaceTime um, so we so we minimize travel we minimize contact and transmission in that way and um, what else? Well, we've gone through all the steps. Um, actually, very much like in the article, and we've removed the coffee, the sweets, the magazines, the non-essential things in the waiting areas, so people don't accidentally touch a magazine and then contamine um, contaminate and spread the, the the virus. And and for instance, when it I've got a whole to ask you don't you worry oh, wow okay <laughs> and for instance we are encouraging our clients to 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 pay through a paying app um, in their phone instead of touching the the card the credit card um, like the display what do you call it in english like the you know the, the credit card <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's so many steps we've we've incorporated in, into our practices. What about in India? Are you guys even open yet, or are you still closed down for aesthetic treatment? No, we are open since last uh, two weeks. Uh huh. And it had been a very interesting experience because earlier for our staff, it would be just looking at the time slot and giving appointment. And then when patient is going back, they have to kind of 
take payment and not interact much. But now they have much more work to do. When they give appointment, they have to take the complete history. Uh, and again, when the same patient comes back, they have to get the form signed. And of course, take care that patient is taking all the precautions. They are sitting at distance, even if uh, uh, sometimes there's a situation when you have two patients, then the newer guidelines which have come is that per patient you have, you should have 10 square meter of area in your waiting uh, place. So that comes out to around 100 uh, square feet per patient. So many, many aesthetic clinics, they don't have that big uh, waiting area. So even if you have a waiting area of 200 square feet, that means you can accommodate only two patients in that waiting area. So even a six feet social distancing is not enough. So the staff has to be now very, very vigilant and they have to work uh, twice than before because uh, we have cut down our staff and we are calling, we've divided them into weekly shifts. So half of the staff, they come for one week and then they are given one complete week off. And the next uh, half of the staff, they come in the next week. But the people who are working during that week, they have to take care of everything which earlier the 100% staff was taking care of. So it's yeah. a little bit tough. There's more work. Mm. But we have cut down the working hours by almost 25%. Mm -hmm. And they are learning this and they also understand that we are doing this for their safety yeah dr kapoor can i ask you well for how long are you planning to have it in this matter for your staff till tomorrow <laughs> okay <laughs> and then what then so so we've we've, we've already tried uh for four weeks uh, three weeks now mm -hmm. with half of the staff but then we decided from First of June, we are going to have everyone back. Wow. And now we we are kind of, instead of giving a weekly off, out of, we work six days a week. So two-thirds of the staff will work on any given day and one-third of the staff will be off. Like for two days, two days, two days, that way uh, we have kind of divided. So that, because when people come after one week, it's difficult for them to maintain the continuity. Mm -hmm. And we also know that even if out of the whole staff, even if one becomes positive by any chance, whether from our clinic or when they go out and go to some shopping area. So even if one of them is positive, we'll have to close down our clinic for minimum three weeks. Mm -hmm. So there is no point uh, being like taking that much precaution and cutting down on the staff. So from tomorrow, we are going to have full staff. Can I ask, um, Chris, what your typical client is like? What's their age? What What are your treatments you're doing on a regular basis? Just give us a feel for your demographic, I guess. See, I stay uh, in a city which is a capital city of two big states in northern India. And Northern India is supposedly quite prosperous compared to many other regions in India. Yeah. And we have, and 
since we have administration of two big states in my city so there are a lot of bureaucrats lot of government employees in my city and there are some businesses and now we have some it parks also coming up here so most of my clients they are from upper middle class to i would say rich class and uh, i think it's likely to affect our practice a little bit because my clientele is such which probably will not be impacted that much economically it's just that fear of coming out of the houses and going to crowded places which is keeping them away but apart from that since we are in the capital of a capital town of two big states we get patients from all over these two states and we have lot of non resident indians and mm. they are a majority of them they are from northern part of india and every winters when it's hard time in europe and canada and us they all come back and that's the time we treat them all <laughs> so maybe by september october when they start coming in will the corona would have come down and we'll be able to take them in our practices fair enough now the last sort of main section of the paper was sort of under the bracket of housekeeping which i thought was a good way of putting it we've actually touched on a lot of this but i'm just going to pick out a couple of them so um obviously social distancing in the actual clinic itself and i think amine you said the door is sort of locked so you don't get walk-ins um so do you have like a spare floating staff member that you didn't previously had to sort of man you know sort of the the waiting room rather than the reception to sort of deal with people knocking on the door and hand washing and all of those things we do not have that we are a very small clinic and i didn't hire someone to do that um so we have to be on our toes and make sure that we follow our safety um safety guidelines um so i don't know how about you uh, christian yeah in my clinic we have one staff she would uh, actually she's there just to take care of patients like she would offer tea coffee or water to all the patient or their relatives who come with them and since now we are we've cut down on this practice of offering refreshment to our patients so her task is to take care of the patients uh, basically all the safety precautions which patient have to take she takes care that everybody gets shoe covers or uh, a polythene bag for their handbags and she would just follow because we try to keep one patient uh, at a time in our clinic so her job is to shadow the patient so so that the patient would not be left alone or uh all the time she the patient should be taking care of uh with regard to the safety to the patient as well as to the uh, to the staff members and how about you david, david? have you been implementing yeah. sorry jake i'm taking over the no, i was going to say i mean cuz his clinics aren't open yet well the camera one <laughs> yeah well, some of them are yeah well the camera's open but only mm-hmm. only for half of the business so half of our business is injectables and half of it is um 
laser hair removal and associated skin treatments and retail products. So Canberra has been going for two weeks now just with injectables. And it's been a little bit easier to sort of run things because we've only got like one or two staff members on at a time. And our injectors will probably see anywhere from like 10 to 15 patients coming through the clinic a day. So, but once we switch on the other segments of the business, which is the, you know, your five minute visit in underarm treatment, you know, I might have 10 or 12 therapists plus an injector mm. plus 100 patients. So the, the, the whole sort of dynamics of the team or the situation changes significantly. Um, well, for New South Wales tomorrow and, and Canberra mm. was on Saturday. So it's, yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, in terms of enforcing it, just doing the best that we can as the staff have all been trained and briefed. Um, they understand the seriousness of, of the matter. Um, and it's just it's just basically we're sort of just figuring it out as we go, to be honest with you, because a lot of the challenges that, that we're going to face, but we don't even know about them yet. David, did um, LCA ever um, discuss, you know, those sort of plastic barriers at the risk? Because- yeah, we've got them in Canberra. We've got them in Canberra. They, so we, we did it. Uh, I can't remember whether they encouraged us to do it, but we're doing it anyway. So I can't remember anything from them saying that we have to do it, but we are doing it to stop people coming right up and potentially spitting <laughs> spitting on people inadvertently. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense, but every time I've seen it in a shop, yeah. what happens is the person sort of talks around it to, to speak to the person. <laughs> yeah. It's like at Subway. People get over the top and they want to, yeah, because yeah. they think you can't hear them. Or, or they speak through the holes at the bank <laughs> to try and get their point across. Yeah. And then it sort of directs a current of air through the holes. So, uh, yeah. you know, Every still every solution creates another problem. <laughs> fair enough. Um, so you've got them in Canberra, okay? Fair enough. Yeah, we've got them in Canberra, and I'll probably I'll probably do them in in um in Sydney as well. I mean, they cost a couple of hundred dollars. They're very easy and quick to install. Yeah. So it seems like a, it seems like a no brainer. Now, I know in your clinic here in Sydney that it's not an insignificant of people who pay in cash. So yeah. it might make sense for something like an injectable treatment to confirm that they. Don't have cash before you start treatment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, we, I'm pretty. We are still taking cash, even though a lot of places aren't. So, like all of my team now, normally, ordinarily, they would take their gloves off when they leave the room and then walk out to reception with bare hands. So, what's actually happening now is once they finish the treatment, before they walk out to reception, they have to change their gloves again because now they're going to yeah. be at front desk, touching computers, answering phones, and so on, and taking cash. Um, so there's like a double up in terms of the number of the amount of clubs that we're using. So it's another step that we just have to be, you know, the girls are going to take a little bit of time to adjust to that. So it's just making sure that we're there to manage the process and, and sort of yeah. remind them. And joking aside, I mean, Iman, maybe you can jump in. This equipment is not cheap. Even, you know, a pair of plastic gloves, the boxes are not cheap. And then you, you're going to be burning through masks and, and all the rest of it. Have you noticed a significant impact on your business? Um, Actually, I have not. And um, the thing is that we're trying to um, not be like, uh, we're trying to not uh, change more than enough, like more than we have to, because um, the supplies are running very, very low. And we've, yeah. we've actually, we have a limited amount of chlorhexidine, and other disinfectants we have a, a very limited amount of gloves as well so i'm more worried that we will will not be able to um to carry out um, our procedures due to the lack of um, ppe and i mean uh, the gloves and, and disinfectants yeah, so i we, wow. we don't we don't care i mean 
it sounds uh, silly, but we don't care too much about uh, the costs um, because I know that this is the cost we have to take in order to uh, make the procedures safe. Yeah. Do you, either of you, or even Jake as well, do you feel that once this um, this passage of time is is behind us, um, we'll still continue with a lot of these protocols? Or if not, how do you think any of them will, will remain in terms of you know extra glove use, like you know uh, getting patients to come in on their own? Just any any of the stuff that we've now doing that we weren't doing before? Do you think will be a leg like will become a legacy that will be left behind even when we move beyond? I think at this point of time, no no one knows for how long this is going to go on. But at least for looking back at previous pandemics, such things happened many years ago, many decades ago, and for one or two years, things were very bad. And then everything became normal. But I think for 2020, we are definitely going to follow these precautions. And hopefully in 2021, as the things get better some of these uh, stringent precautions which are there which may we may uh, let go of them yes i agree and the, we have to remember that there's also some positive things coming out of this um for instance um, the the online consultations that we're offering it's actually a good complement a good add-on to the services that we have so, um, and in my practice, we've been, we've been less busy with patients. So we've uh, come up with the solution of interacting more with our patients and our followers through, through Instagram, for instance. So we're doing Q and A's and we're trying to engage more. And I think that kind of not only strengthens the brand, but also strengthens your relationship with your clients um, and educating your clients and, um, so th- there's a lot of positive things also. Yeah, I agree. And um, some clinics might be stimulated to move to digital rather than using paper and streamline their payment processes and institute online booking, all of those things that some clinics may not still have. Maybe it will just give them that push to you know, modernize and streamline things. So, yeah, there's some positive. And also, the, I know, I mean, we all, uh, like Dr. Kapoor and myself, we're traveling uh, quite a lot. I think um, Dr. Kapoor is traveling a lot more than I am, but um, I travel at least once uh, a week, um, at least once other we- um, every other week and uh, to different countries. And I've had so many more webinars and I've had an audience of 300 people sitting and listening to my, uh, to my um, lectures. And I'm still in the safety and comfort of my own home. And it's much more time efficient and um, it's good for the environment. So there's so many aspects uh, besides the fact that we are decreasing the transmission of the virus, for instance. So I hope that we are um, we will uh, take advantage of these changes that we've so suddenly uh, incorporated into our daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's just one more thing I wanted to cover was um, what sanitizers do you recommend for, you know, wiping down surfaces in, in injectable rooms or chairs? You know, is there evidence that alcohol is better and it has to be 70 percent or are you using um, bleaches or wh- which other um, things did you say in your paper? For, uh, for the surface, basically, we suggested that it could be cleaned with uh, either 1 percent sodium hypochlorite solution or 
we can use a 70% alcohol based sanitizers and these and apart from that one very important thing which you mentioned in the paper is that as far as taking care of the equipment uh we should be very particular about using only the recommended products for example if i'm doing uh some procedure say cool sculpting and if i have to clean the applicator i need to ask the manufacturer the the right way to clean this i yeah. should not be using some product which can cause some rusting or damage to the sensitive part of the applicator so that way one has to if you have some really expensive laser or some other equipment you need to contact your manufacturer and take the guidelines from them perfect um i know in here in australia and i know you've got this in your clinic david there's a brand called viraclean it's a hospital grade um uh you know cleanser that's tga approved so it's approved for use in australia and you can also use it on metal surfaces it's non corrosive and it's ph neutral so that's a good one if you can get your hands on viraclean Sure, and we also try. mentioned in the paper that it's better to wipe uh, than to spray um, around. So that's just an add-on comment. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, the one practicality that I've sort of noticed as I went to my clinic last week was, you know, pre-COVID, sometimes you would say, forget a piece of gauze and you would quite casually go and get it mid-treatment and then, you know, restart your treatment. I think you really have to plan ahead. So, you know... Are you that sloppy, Jake? Well, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm nearly <laughs> perfect, but not quite. No, but, but you know what I mean? But, you know, I had heard that uh, Jake is the best uh, Botox injector in his town. Wow. <laughs> well, did you hear that from Jake? <laughs> see, now he is going to be even better. You know why? Now he's, yeah. now he's organized. <laughs> he was already the best. Now he's going no. to be better than the best. Wow. Yeah, no, but joking aside, I mean, most of us will open a sterile pack. We, we will have all of our things there. But what I'm saying is you don't then want to be opening a drawer, going back to the cupboard, opening the door handle, calling someone in or whatever. You really want to be minimizing those contact points. And until you really, really, really think about it, it's easy to do. So, yeah, you just want to be mindful of that. And then the other great point that you guys came up with was management of cleaning or or just protocols in your communal kitchens at work. Um, you know, that's going to be a potential Petri dish for all sorts of stuff. Um, so you want to be thinking about your kettle handles and your fridge doors and all of those things that you probably don't think about um, could be potential sort of areas where inadvertently you transmit disease or or otherwise. So thanks for flagging that in your paper as well. Thank you. You've really, really read our paper, Jake. I'm so impressed. Well, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, I think this stuff is really, really practical. You know, you don't have to be a genius to read this paper. That's why I liked it. It's in lay terms. Um, and I just thought that if we could sort of disseminate some of this information to people listening, it would just make a real practical difference. So yeah, I think it's because of people like Jake who downloaded our paper. This paper has become number three rank of all time for all the articles ever published in dermatologic therapy. And this is just 10 days old paper. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, I did have a list of all the co-authors because I didn't want to leave them off um, 
and forget them. Could you just reel off their names and where they work so they get credited as well? Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> of course. I can just see Nicole with the going furious now. Yeah, of Jake, Jake, Jake just wants you to hear him say his name. No, I wasn't on it. I wasn't on, on this one. Okay. <laughs> Christian Aman left me out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> Jake is in Martin a different, different group. We are doing another paper with Jake. Ah, very good. Yeah. So, so should we uh, mention me, our friends? Yeah. yeah. Yes, ahead. Iman, please. Okay, so we have, of course, the head author, Dr. K.M. Kapoor. And then we have Vandana, which we already mentioned. Um, Shatrat is her last name. And we have our colleague, Sarah Gillian Boxley. And uh, where is she located? She's in Perth, Australia. Yeah, okay. She's in Perth, Australia. Ah, oh, perfect. And then we have myself uh, in Sweden. And then we have our colleague, Philip Snotzi, in, uh, in um, Zurich, in Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah. Switzerland. Yes. And we have Dr. Nesto. Um, I do not know exactly how to pronounce his last name. Demestinos. Thank you. Perfect. And where is he located? In Edinburgh, in the UK? London and Scotland. Yeah, he goes up and down and works with Tapan in London and then he goes back up to Scotland. And then we have Dr. Victoria Bello in, uh, in the Philippines. And then, then we have my Nordic colleague, Dr. Vaiman Chan in, uh, in, uh, in Oslo. And Dr. Nicole Canaris in uh, Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. And then, of course, the lovely Dr. Panit Kapoor. Uh, the missus of uh, Dr. K.M. Kapoor, of course, uh, also in India. Well, guys, you should be congratulated. It was a great um, practical paper, and I hope all the injectors and clinic owners and therapists and everyone hopefully listening can apply that into their clinic and their own situation. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. It's good to catch up and see your lovely faces rather than just phone calls and WhatsApp. (laughs) <laughs> yeah thank you guys lovely to meet you both yeah thank you thank you so much for inviting us and uh, good the best of luck to you guys uh, on your reopening for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on instagram at inside underscore aesthetics during the week before every recording look out for our instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out you can also dm us for any other information suggestions or guest requests